Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX-75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. In our last episode, we explored cabin cooling. And today, in episode five, Mike and I are exploring braking systems. So, Mike, I heard a quotation that brakes are not to make a car stop. They allow a car to go faster. Yeah, that's that's excellent, Kevin. Actually, it's very, very accurate accurate and very relevant actually to what we're going to talk about today. Um, it's funny though, I can give you a, an opposite quotation from Etoire Bugatti back in the 1930s. Com- customers were complaining that the brakes on his Type 35 racing car were not working very well. And he said, I make my cars to go, not to stop, which is fairly short-sighted view of what the braking system does. <laughs> I, like, I like that. I like that. So <laughs> off you go, off you go. So yeah, so like I said, your quote's very relevant. So actually, I think I think in the history of car development that the remit of the braking system has broadened from what it was originally more than any other system has broadened. So brakes, you know, initially the requirement was just stop the car, but they went from that to more sort of complicated and nuanced activities where they start controlling the individual speed of the wheels. Then they start looking at the, the slip angle of the car. And then right up to today where the braking is actually forming part of the charging system with, with regenerative braking on electric cars. So there's a whole mass of what you're about to tell us, not just from start, stopping and starting the car, but the whole stability and all sorts of things are going to tie in. This is going to be a great conversation. So what were the first systems? Well, first systems were wooden blocks. So just, just like carriages. So mechanically pushing wooden blocks against steel rims. Um, and that very quickly became um, ineffective and, and not very much use because in 1885, the Michelin brothers invented the solid rubber tire and suddenly these rubber blocks were ripping up the rubber tires. So it forced the invention very quickly of a better braking system. You're reminding me of my childhood when we had what we called in the North guiders you made out of pram wheels, little carts, and there was terrible braking. You either put your feet down or you had a piece of wood that was as hard as you could press it against one of the wheels. So yeah. it, it wasn't it wasn't good. It, it led to a lot of disasters. Anyway, yeah. so we, we've seen the, the Michelin Brothers and Pneumatic Tire 1885. What came next? Well, in the first 30 years, there, there was a sort of rapid trial and error development of various technologies and various types of systems on, on braking systems. And that was really because of this, um, you know, if you think about it, the braking system, it's actually, it's in conflict with the drive system, right? They're, they're trying to do different things. Right. And I, for me, it's just sticking 30 years is a hell of a long time to be developing this. Um, so, and what it is, is the engine is driving and the brakes are stopping. So they're conflicting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it's quite a difficult job for brakes. Or, you know, as with many of these things on cars, Kevin, we, we just take it for granted what they do now. But if you wind yourself back to the start, 
when the engineers were trying to find solutions. If you look at all of the things that they were asking of a braking system, so it has to impede the motion of the car, right? So we get that, but it has to do it only when it's requested. So when we don't want brakes, we want the car to be able to roll and drive freely. And they did that by, in whatever format, by adding friction to the system. And friction creates heat and it creates dust. And both of those reduce the friction. So you have this changing performance. But, but at the same time, we expect that we can use brakes repeatedly without losing the performance. And then on top of that, as cars were being developed, there, was, there were increases in power, which the brakes had to do more work for, and the cars were getting heavier so that they, they were harder to stop. So, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a lot of different things were trialed in those first, day, first years. But the most, in my mind, the most popular system that came to the fore first was drum brakes. They were the early invention. Yeah, they were. So drum brakes actually were first invented in 1902 on the Renault Type G, but they were an external drum brake. So we had a drum with the shoes pushing on the outside of it. And because they were external, they were, you know, they were exposed to mud and debris and water from the road. So, you know, prone to damage. The first drum brakes that we would recognize as being like the ones you see on cars today, were was on uh, a Duesenberg in 1915. Duesenberg at that point were creating racing cars only, and they put drum brakes or internal drum brakes on their um, racing car. But they kept those drum brakes through to when they started making production cars in 1920. And we have drum brakes today; they're still in use today. Yeah, exactly. It's the same principle, right? That you know, so this idea that you have a steel drum. And inside that steel drum, you have sort of semicircular shaped shoes. When you put your foot in the brake, those shoes expand out and they rub on the, on the inside of the drum and that's what slows the car down. Very cheap to make, very easy to repair. Um, and, it's, and still today for, kind of for lighter cars or for slower vehicles, they're perfectly adequate. Often we'd see on small front wheel drive cars where the front axle is braked using disc brakes, but the rear axle is braked using drum brakes. Right, and, and drum brakes, cable operated throughout? Uh, well, not, not throughout. Um, so parking brakes tend to be cable operated, um, but hydraulic brakes, uh, also nearly all systems today are, are hydraulic brake um, operated or hydraulically operated. The Lockheed company, so Martin Lockheed, who invented the Lockheed Aircraft Company, he patented hydraulic systems in 1918 for aircraft. And then... They were put on the first, the first production car that got them was in 1921, again on a Duesenberg on, on their Model A. This is another example of crossover, <clears throat> excuse me, from aircraft engineering to cars, because we spoke about this in our first episode when we spoke about aerodynamics and the crossover at that time from aviation into um, uh, automotive. Yeah, there, there are lots of crossovers in braking, actually. We'll, we'll, we'll see that again a few times in this conversation. The Lockheed brothers themselves, they were as interested in car engineering as they were in aircraft engineering. And they had alternated a few times between setting up car companies and setting up aircraft companies. And it was really World War I when Lockheed Aircraft became, you know, it cemented what they were doing because they got some pretty hefty contracts from the US government. So did this mean then that hydraulics became commonplace? Well, they, they, they start becoming used more and more from that first Duesenberg in the 1920s, but not immediately accepted. Um, there's a nice little story about the Model A. So Edsel Ford wanted to put hydraulic brakes on the Model A. And when Henry Ford, his father, tested one, on the day he was testing it, 
the hydraulic brake line split and it lost hydraulic fluid and it lost its braking system. And as a result, Henry Ford then decreed that no Fords would have hydraulic brakes. And it stayed that way well up into the 1940s. So up until, up, up until the 1940s, all Fords kept, kept cable-operated cable, cable brakes. So when Henry Ford makes a decree, Henry Ford makes a decree. Pretty That's right. Yeah. So uh, hydraulics are better. Yeah, they're, they're better than cables in, in many ways. So um, cables can stretch, whereas a hydraulic oil doesn't compress. So you don't lose braking feel in, um, up on the pedal. And as well as that, cables have friction losses and the actuation of a hydraulic system, you can gear up the actuation without adding friction to the system. So that means that for less pressure at the brake pedal, we can have more pressure at the caliper. And also means we can have a further movement on the pedal and uh, for a small amount of movement on the caliper. So we get a, a higher level of control. This is again what you were talking about earlier, that we forget the modern systems that we have in place in our cars. A little push on the pedal is massive braking at the other end. Yeah. So it's fascinating. The braking systems and they're assisted. Yeah. So... Initially, they were just mechanically operated, and then we start seeing assistance. And the primary means of assisting brake system that came in at first was by using a vacuum booster. Really simple concept, very effective concept. So when the internal engine, internal combustion engine is operating, the air is passing through the intake manifold at a low pressure, and that allows a vacuum to be drawn off it. So the brake pedal actuates on a, on a sealed chamber, and on one side of that sealed chamber, there's a vacuum that's drawn from the engine. Because there's a vacuum on it, it there's no resistance to it, and the differential in pressure between the vacuum and the positive pressure at the pedal means that it has, it's able to push that pedal for very, uh, forward very easily. The system was actually first tried way back in 1903. Another example of something you know, that, you know, happened quite early, but it wasn't picked up. Um, it didn't go into production until 1928 with, um, with the Pierce Arrow. And really then sort of various types of power assistance started becoming popular in the 1950s at the point where disc brakes started becoming popular. And in braking, disc brakes are the next big technical step. They are really, but, you know, kind of like I just said a moment ago, you know, you get, you get this thing in braking in particular where there were lots of systems that were, or technologies were invented and even patented, but they weren't picked up on or they weren't developed further. So you'd have something that was developed early on and just we don't see it for many, many years. So disc brakes were patented in 1902 by the Lanchester Company and first went into production in 1949 by Crosley. But... The first car that had disc brakes was actually an electric car called a Cleveland Sperry in 1898. And Kevin, there's, this is one for you. You'll like this one because it's an, there's an Irish connection here. Only two electric Cleveland cars are still in existence. And one of them was owned by an Irish gentleman called Horace Plunkett in 1900. So he was a, an agricultural industrialist. And he created the first agri-co-op in a town in Dunrail here in County Cork. That's brilliant, Mike. That's definitely a story for the Ireland Made website for the future. Thank you very much. But I'm just running through my head. 1898, like that's a long, long time between that and 18, or 1949 before they actually put everything into production. Yeah, it was. Now, this breaks were developed, but they were developed for aircraft, actually, particularly through World War II. And even actually some, some Tiger tanks had, had disc brakes. So 1949, American company Crosley were the first company to put them into production. 
but it's often the Jaguar racing team of the 50s that's credited with, with sort of pushing the popularity of disc brakes. Jaguar were running uh, the C-Type at the Le Mans 24-hour race, and they, in 50, 1953, they came first and second. And they, they credited a huge amount of that success to the disc brakes. And you know, while we're on it, Kevin, here's another little Irish link for you. One of the winning drivers was a guy called Duncan Hamilton, who was also born uh, in County Park here, where I am right now. Thank you very much, Mike. That's another link to the Ireland Made channel. But I'm noticing a sinister plot here. Everyone you're mentioning for the stories for Ireland Made has to be from Cork. Pure coincidence. Pure coincidence. Right. So the C-Type, my favourite car of all time, love it to bits. The disc brakes then became common. They did become common, actually. So... 1953, if we look at the Citroen DS, so that's kind of considered to be the car, the first car that was had high volume production that had disc brakes. Um, the DS was a very innovative car, so it relied heavily on high pressure hydraulics. So it operated the brakes, steering the suspension system. And the brake, in fact, there was, I was going to say the brake pedal, there was no brake pedal on, on a Citroen DS. Instead, it had this large rubber button on the floor. So rather than travel movement of the pedal, it was brake pressure on this rubber button that created hydraulic or that actuated the hydraulic pressure. And because the brakes and the steering and the suspension were all interlinked, um, the system automatically compensates for loads. So if there's a big heavy load in the trunk, rather than the car dipping down at the back, it, um, it levels the suspension automatically. And then likewise, under heavy braking, where a car typically dips at the front, it leveled under heavy braking. So that was the Citroen DS. And then that was still an option, but it was on it. And then the first car that had disc brakes as standard all around was the 1962 Studebaker Avanti. Avanti, yeah. Sorry to cut across here. I'm just thinking that this, this 1955 Citroen was such an incredibly complex car and a brilliant car. The ride in, the suspension, the steering all interlinked, absolutely brilliant, incredible car. So the story that we're now exploring, <clears throat> car manufacturers were starting to look at the safety aspects of their braking systems. Yeah, that's right. So in the 1960s, we started seeing a lot of development work on stopping wheels from locking up under braking. So if you allow that when a wheel is turning and you apply the brakes, that braking effort is transferred to the road. But if a wheel locks up, the tire starts to slide across the surface of the road and that greatly reduces the braking effort. And as well as reducing the overall braking effort, if a single wheel locks up, we don't have individual braking effort on all four wheels. And that has the potential of creating a turning moment on the car, which can, can promote a spin. It sort of acts like a pendulum. Yeah, you're, you're reminding me of my early driving days in my 900cc uh, Daihatsu charade diesel van and something like that used to happen quite a lot. So now we're, we're moving into anti-lock braking systems. Yeah, anti-lock braking systems or, or ABS. Another technology that was developed for aircraft, actually. Um, if you think when a, when a plane is going into land, it drops into landing carriage. Before it touches down, the wheels are actually stationary. They're just, they're just hanging in the air. And as soon as it touches down, the wheels have to rapidly get up to speed. So they, they have to rapidly come up to the speed that the, the plane is traveling at. So it can be 100 to 160 kilometers per hour. But then once they're, they're spinning, the pilot applies the brakes immediately and immediately tries to slow it down. So you have this rapid increase in speed and then a rapid braking, uh, a massive uh, braking effort. And the combination of those means that there's a very high chance of, of wheel lock up. 
Right. So this the ABS system then was an early an early adoption onto aircraft. Yep, right back into 1929, actually, a French engineer called Voisin, he invented the mechanical system, and then it was used on a number of different planes sort of through the, the 1930s. And then the Dunlop Tire Company invented a system called the Maxarit system, which was a very popular system on, on lots of aircraft, um, a mechanical ABS system. And that Maxarit system went on to the Jensen Interceptor FF in 1966, and that's the first production car to have ABS. And the FF system, which is the Ferguson formula system, we covered on a previous video on Ireland made on the Ferguson P99, which was the first four-wheel drive Formula One car to win a Formula One event, and the first um, Formula One car that was front-engined to win a Formula One event. So that could, the video can be found on Ireland made. And also Sterling Moss said that the P99 was his favorite car. Very, very interesting. So that was the mechanical system. When were the electronic systems uh, introduced? We started seeing electronics coming in, in the 60s as well. Um, so the mechanical systems were effective, but the problem with the mechanical systems is there's a, there's a lag between the, the wheel locking up and a response. And in braking, um, it's all about time. It's all about rapid response. In 68, Ford had developed a... Um, relatively simple electronic system called SureTrack that they had on as an option on the Lincoln Continental and on the Thunderbird. But um, it was only actuated on, on the rear wheels, actually. It was only, only on, the, on the rear axle. Right. So then are we talking about four-wheel drive system coming forward? No, so not four-wheel drive, but ABS actuating on all four wheels. Oh, four-wheel system. Apologies. It's a four-wheel system. I have you now. Sorry. Yeah. And... Um, so that was Ford with only on the rear axle. And then, you know, because these developments are all sort of linear and gradual, it's, you know, there's a little bit of a debate over what was the first car to actually have four-wheel electronic ABS. So I'm going to sort of put my, put my flag in the ground and say, I think it was the 1978 Mercedes S-Class. And the reason I think it's that car is because it was the first car to have multi-channel electronic system operating on all four wheels. And it operated on two principles, the principle of threshold braking and the principle of cadence braking. Okay, so there's two brand new terms for us, threshold braking and cadence braking. Please explain. So these are actually driving techniques. They're not just system mechanisms. So threshold braking is a little bit, it does what it says on the team. So it's where the driver brakes right up to the point where the tire starts to slip. So in effect, it's braking right at the limit of the, of the tire adhesion. Cadence braking is a technique where once the tire does start to slip and it, and it locks up, the driver releases the pressure from the brake pedal so that it allows the wheel to rotate again. And then when the, ro the wheel rotates again, you can then apply more pressure and you can apply pressure until it starts to slip again and you can repeat that. And that, that process can be repeated. And I, I'm describing it in sort of a, a slow motion. Actually, it can be done at a, at a high frequency, sort of in a, in a pumping effect. But an ABS system can do it at a much higher frequency than a human can. Yeah, so when you brake heavily, you can feel it coming through the pedal, the bum, 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 bum coming through the pedal. And even when I'm thinking back, back to the 80s, I'm thinking of Jimmy McRae and the Manta going sideways, and the camera was on his feet, and you could see him doing this or attempting this technique by pumping the brakes to give himself better traction. 
Yeah, that's a very good example. So that's that's a driver doing uh, cadence braking and that pumping feel of an ABS and the ABS doing uh, the, the cadence braking. So an ABS system, it monitors the individual wheel speed against the other um, wheels. So it's man, man, monitoring all four wheel speeds. And then when the tire locks up, it uses this cadence brake, braking at a very high frequency to, to maximize the, the, the tire grip. That's that pumping effect you feel. All right. And, and then does that affect, uh, the, does it look at the speed of the car? So nowadays, all of the chassis control systems are, uh, they're interlinked and they're sort of in conversation with, with each other. But in terms of sort of, we're talking through how these things were developed and chronologically, if you add in a system that's looking at the speed of the car, you're actually talking about traction control. So traction control looks at, as ABS does, the individual wheel speeds, but it also looks at the vehicle speeds and then it applies input into the breaker throttle. And Mercedes with the S-Class and Toyota with the Crown independently introduced uh, traction control in, in 1987. And then coincidentally, in 1995, on those same models, they independently introduced electronic stability control. So that's a little ESC button that you see on the dash. Yeah, ESC. So, um, you know, Kevin, car manufacturers and car engineers, they, they love three-letter acronyms, you know, or, or TLAs, which is the three-letter acronym for three-letter acronyms. But even within automotive engineering, you know, I have to say control system engineers take take TLAs to, to an art form. They really do. So ESC is electronic stability control. But depending on what the variant of the system is, or depending on the car company, it could be called ESP, Instability Program, VDC, Vehicle Dynamic Control, or DSC, Dynamic Stability Control, or some variant of all of those sort of ESVDC letters, you know. So, uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. Actually, you, you, you got slightly confused there because the ESP is Electronic Stability Program, so even the engineers get a bit mixed up. There you go. So we'll stick with... Electro now I'm getting mixed up. We'll stick with electronic stability control for the purposes of our conversation. Yeah, let's keep it at ESC. So ESC considers wheel speed, vehicle speed, and steering angle. So braking is fine in a straight line, but actually 99% of the time, if a car is skidding, then there's also going to be a steering input required. So that's sort of keep the car in the lane or maybe avoidance of an obstacle, or just to stop the car from spinning. So ESC monitors the steering wheel angle. It looks at the yaw, the roll, and the pitch of the car. It looks at the wheel speeds, and it looks at the throttle and brake inputs, and then it adds local control over these. So it's adding a huge amount of information, combining them all, because it's hard to brake and steer at the same time. But I know there's a simple way to look at this, and it's called the circle of adhesion and we're very lucky because we have an automotive engineer who's about to explain it to us yeah that's right yeah so (laughs) yeah the circle of adhesion so if you think of it this way so there's there's a a finite amount of adhesion there's a finite amount of grip available to the car so when you're doing things when you're braking cornering steering you have to share that grip among the four the four tires so if you imagine a circle and that circle represents the total amount of grip or adhesion that you've got Inside the circle is, is the grip, and outside the circle is that there's no grip, there's no adhesion. Now imagine at the top of the circle, 12 o'clock, it represents the maximum adhesion that you have in straight line accelerating. 
And six o'clock, the bottom of the circle, represents maximum grip you have in straight line braking. And then, so if you imagine a little dot up there, so up at the top for maximum acceleration, down at the bottom for maximum braking. And then if you turn to the left, if you're maximum left, the little dot goes over to the nine o'clock position. And at maximum right-hand cornering grip, the little dot goes over to the right-hand side. So that's our little dot moves around depending on what the car is doing. So then what you effectively get is you get a sliding scale whereby if you are applying maximum braking in a straight line, little dot is down at the six o'clock position. If you now apply some steering, you go outside the circle because you've got no more grip available to you. So you just go straight to the left-hand side or straight to the left to the right-hand side and you go outside the circle. In other words, you lose grip. And then vice versa, if you're going through a corner at the maximum grip that's available to the tires while you go to the corner, so you're, our little dot is now over the three o'clock or the nine o'clock position. If you add braking, or indeed if you add throttle, you again, you go outside that, that circle, you, you lose grip. So you have this sliding scale where the more braking you apply, the less steering you can apply, or vice versa, the more steering you apply, the less acceleration or braking you can apply. And it's, it's relevant for cars sort of at limit handling, handle, at the, the limit of their, their handling. But it's actually even more relevant if you think about a motorbike. So, because in a car, if you lose adhesion, you'll slip on the road. Whereas on a motorbike, if you lose adhesion, one of the tires slip, it can be very difficult and maybe sometimes impossible to recover that and the bike can go down. Yeah, you're more, you're more likely the back wheel goes to go down. As a biker myself, I know when you've taken a line on the road and if you feel a tire going, that's a hard one to recover out of. And ABS will meet that solution and motorbikes now have ABS. Yeah, that's right. Um, so motorbike, uh, sorry, uh, BMW brought in ABS on the K100 motorbike in 1988. And it's now pretty common as is sort of traction control and stability control, particularly on, on bigger bikes. All right. So then what about electric cars? Well, electric cars have all of the same traffic controls that we talked about. So ESC, traction control, ABS. But as I said at the outset, the braking system on an electric car also has a, has a different remit because it now is part of the charging system and recharging the braking. So known as regenerative braking. Yeah, that's right. Regen braking. Regen. Now, believe it or not, the very first car with regenerative braking was a French car called a Krieger Landulet, and it was built in 1898, all the way back there. 1898? Yeah. We think of of Regen as being a a modern technology, but there were quite a few electric cars back in the start of the last century. Um, So Regen braking, it's possible on electric cars because of how a motor works. So a motor receives electric current from the battery, that creates magnetic fields in, in the windings. They, in turn, rotate the the output shaft and that drives the transmission and ultimately drives the wheels. Now, if we reverse the principle and we apply rotation to that shaft into the motor, the motor will spin um, the rotor inside and the windings create current. And that's what we would think of as being a generator, an electrical generator. So in electric cars, we use both of these principles. So when a car is accelerating, we're driving the wheels, we're driving the motor, driving the wheels. And when it's braking, that mechanical rotation from the wheels is now going back into the motor and creating electrical charge. And we use that to recharge the battery. So we're effectively recovering energy, which would otherwise just be lost. We're now recovering it back into the battery. And at the same time, because it's generating electrical 
and current is generating electrical loads and that's creating a resistance to the rotation of the, of the wheel. So that's why regen braking can give us a braking effect and also can recharge the battery at the same time. Right, so it can do, do both. That's fascinating. Now, electrical cars, they still have manual brakes though. Yeah, they do. So there's a percentage split between the electric braking through regen and the hydraulic braking. If you take, I'll take an example of a front wheel drive electric car. So what you would typically get is as you put your foot on the brakes, um, the regen braking is actuating on the driven wheels, so the front wheels. And at the same time, the hydraulic brakes are actuating um, with a little less effort on the undriven wheels. So they're proportionally more on the front axle. And that's because as you brake, there's more effort needed on the front axle. But then as you increase braking effort with your, uh, on the pedal, they both proportionally increase, but also the hydraulic brakes are added in on the undriven wheels on, on, the, uh, on the, the, the back wheels on the front wheel drive car. So you can adjust and change the amount of regen braking you have available. Yeah, you can. So if you take cars like the Kia EV6, it has paddles behind the steering wheel that allow you to set how strong the regen is. But by combining electric braking and hydraulic braking, the driver doesn't lose the feel of the brake pedals because the electric braking, one of the problems with it, it can, it, it can, there can be a disconnect for the driver where it doesn't have that much feel from it. So the hydraulic brakes retain that. Because ultimately, you know, even with all of the system intelligence that is now um, that are now in braking systems, if you go right back to the early days, actually the main characteristic that the driver is looking for is a sense of confidence in the braking system that the brakes will do what what the driver wants uh, wants it to do. Excellent. Thank you, Mike, for exploring braking systems in today's episode. Please join us for episode six, where we explore trendsetters and game changers in automotive manufacturing. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.